Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Good, Katie. I'm, I'm making some potentially exciting sort of late summer, early fall plans, actually. Oh, really? What, what are you thinking of doing? Well, you know, a lot of travel plans have been scuttled by this whole pandemic thing. I, I feel like I haven't really been away from the Northeast for a while. So I've been looking at cheap flights and like nice, affordable cities. Have you heard of um, Portland, Oregon? <laughs> I am I am familiar with Portland, yes. I've heard of it. Apparently, it's just this paradise, like mountains nearby, incredible food trucks, good beer, great quality of life. So I think maybe later this month, I'm just going to fly to Portland and just you know, walk around for a few days and enjoy myself. Does that plan sound good to you? You know, I think this is great. I think Port- you can probably get really cheap tickets out there right now. I would suggest that you bring maybe some goggles and a gas mask. Interesting. Well, let's talk about that in a minute. But first, what podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported, the only podcast. And I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. What are we talking about today, Jesse? Yeah, we're 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 going to talk about Portland. Uh, joking aside, there is some stuff going on there, and it's been very confusing to watch. It's a prime example of like a big national news event in an age where you can't really feels increasingly like you can't really trust any media outlets, with a few exceptions. A lot of confusion about what's going on, so we're just going to sort of talk about all that first. Katie, do you want to just quickly uh, tout our? Uh, premium subscription program? Yes, we have a premium subscription program for people who have nothing better to spend their money on. It is hosted at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. You may have heard us mention this once or twice before. And uh, if you join the Patreon for the the minimum price, it's $5 a month. You get lots and lots of goodies, like three extra episodes a month. Uh, I will send you um, pictures of Jesse's feet if that's what you really want. Um, or pictures of his horse, if you want that. We have some very nice, like, topless, like, horseback riding photos, sort of like in the vein of Vladimir Putin, but a little bit more sexual uh, or more more romantic. And really. sexual. Um, and sexual. So there's tons of stuff there. Uh, check it out. Yep. Patreon.com slash Botch Reported. So, Katie, I mean, there's a huge amount to talk about here with, with Portland. Where where do you want to start? How about the moms? The moms. This is like this is like the whole sort of milkshake duck thing. Like the nation gets or Twitter gets introduced to a new concept, and then like a day later, it's problematic. So this was what? What's the name of the group? It's like Portland Moms. Yeah. So the Wall of Moms is a group that was founded very recently in response to Donald Trump sending uh, sending the feds to Portland. So he sent, I think, believe it was Border Patrol. Mostly Border Patrol, yeah. So yeah, so Border Patrol offices, officers, uh, sort of heavily armed, militarized um, people who would look like soldiers, possibly, have been sent to Portland to maybe accomplish a couple things. So on the surface, uh, I think what Donald Trump's press handlers would say is the reason they sent federal troops to Portland or these uh, federal officers to Portland was to quell this civil unrest. So for the past two months since the killing of George Floyd, there's been massive protests in Portland. And this could, you know, Portland is a protest city. It could have been anything like any sort of catalyst. Portland will show the fuck up. And so for two months, they've been protesting um, throughout the city, but really it's focused on this this one really small area of Portland. So there's this like two block radius downtown where they have a bunch of um, sort of federal buildings, bureaucratic buildings. And so the ones in particular, the buildings in particular that are, that the protesters are focusing on are the justice center, um, which is where they house the police department. There's a, there's a county prison in there. And then there's a federal courthouse. And so protesters have been 
you know, sort of peacefully demonstrating in front of this, in front of these buildings, but other protesters, or maybe sometimes the same protesters, have also been attacking these buildings. Um, and uh, the federal courthouse in particular, Donald Trump uh, sent in sent in these 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 border patrol agents um, to go sort of protect the building. And this was, you know, maybe my fault for not following the news too closely, but I, one thing that confused me that I think got lost in the shuffle a little bit was like the first violence. Again, it could be 90% of the protesters are peaceful. The first like real violence popped off almost immediately after George Floyd's death. May 29th, someone set fire to part of the Justice Center and protesters broke windows and climbed in and were just sort of defacing the building from within. Again, no one died. There were people sort of huddled in the basement scared because they didn't know what was going on. But I did find in some of the coverage, people sort of left off the fact that like early on in this, people really did like light fire to and break into a government building. Right. And this is a, a government building where there's also a prison. So if they had, and there, so not just cops working there, there are people who haven't been convicted of a crime being housed there. Um, there are nurses, there are other people on staff. So this is not the sort of building that like empties out at 5 PM. And if you burned it down at midnight, everybody would be gone. Um, th- so one of the sort of side stories I love here is the guy who was charged with lighting the building on fire is named Edward Thomas Shinzing, 32. If you go to the Justice Department's website, I'll link to this. You get this amazing paragraph. Quote, among those who entered the Justice Center, Shinzing was identified by a comparison with a jail booking photo and a distinctive tattoo of his last name across <laughs> his upper back. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, I joked about this on Twitter. It's like he had a tattoo on his arm that said, I like to do arson a lot. And this helped us find him. Yeah, that's some brilliant policing right there. Really good work. Right. So the protest started after the death of George Floyd. People started attacking the building. Donald Trump sends in the feds. And then in response to that, surprise, surprise, the feds are unable to quell this uprising and uh, they actually make it worse. Whoever could have predicted. Um, so even people who maybe don't support the uh, looting of buildings or the attacking of buildings began to feel sympathetic with this protest movement, which is makes complete sense because there was lots of video being posted online and, and this narrative being spread by the mainstream media that innocent protesters were being attacked by these by these officers. And I, I think some of that is probably true. Um, I have a friend who's a, a journalist in Portland, um, a photographer, and this f- he was he was at one of the protests covering it. He took one of these, I guess it was like a one of these like rubber balls or something, rubber bullets. I'm not quite sure what the actual um, weapon was, but he took a shot to the eye. Right? He was wearing a gas mask and it, it, it busted out the the eye of his mask, and he has this this photo of him went went viral where he just has this like fucking massive black eye. His face is all fucked up. He's bleeding. Um, and you know, I doubt that he was there doing anything, but he certainly supports the movement. But I, I doubt he was there ransacking the building. He was there taking photos. And, well, there was a much more even a, more alarming because we got the whole thing on video. This guy named Donovan Labella, who's 26. You can watch video of him. He's just sort of standing there with a sign up at a safe distance from anything you know i think he's yelling at the police or the the border patrol people guarding the building one of them just shoots something hits him in the skull he's had to get reconstructive surgery fractured his skull there's a lawsuit it's just like criminally negligent policing and crowd control and that ties into the fact that um the times got a memo just gonna read this it's a sentence um 
The tactical agents deployed by Homeland Security include officials from a group known as BORTAC, the Border Patrol's equivalent of a SWAT team, a highly trained group that normally is tasked with investigating drug smuggling organizations as opposed to protesters in cities. And the Times obtained a memo from, I think, DHS that basically said these guys have no training for these situations. So like even the federal government, even the Trump administration knew sending these guys in was was they're not crowd control. That requires a very specific sort of training that they lack. And we're seeing what I think are the inevitable results of that. Right. And so I've been trying to think, like, put myself in Donald Trump's head. Why would you send in troops to Portland where it's going to escalate the situation rather than make it better? And this is uh, pure speculation, but I'm guessing this is really a re-election campaign because he wants video on the news of of people trying to set fire to these buildings. He knows that it's going to escalate the situation. So for people who are inclined to this sort of uh, law and order ethos, this is going to, I think, Trump would assume, uh, increase the likelihood that they would vote for him. It's having the opposite effect locally, um, but Oregon isn't going to go for Trump anyway. I mean, one of the interesting dynamics here, and we've mentioned this a few times, is that the overall last polling I saw, most Americans supported the protests. And the protests have been, I think, overwhelmingly peaceful. I do think, and we can discuss this more, in some cases, media have not honestly covered these, these hot spots of genuine violence and destruction. But this gambit by Trump is like really dangerous. Like he's not, some people are overstating it. He's sending like, I think a few dozen personnel to different cities. I think Chicago and Cleveland, it's clear he wants to stir shit up. And I mean, the, the, I would under normal circumstances, I would say the best thing for Trump would be a summer that just produces all this footage of like federal agents fighting with like Antifa dudes. It also might be the case that Trump is already so untrusted and underwater that it won't help. You and I disagreed about the protests. I I think the polling bore out my more optimistic take on the protests. Do you think this could reverse that if things get worse? I'm not sure about that. I mean, If you're a Trump voter, you might look at what's happening now and say, why the fuck did he send these troops in? Uh, This is making things worse. He's incompetent. Or you might say, uh, look at these crazy fucking anarchists attacking this building and attacking these officers. Now I'm more inclined to vote for Donald Trump. I mean, to me, the, the thing that's important to always remember is that it doesn't matter how he does in California. It doesn't matter how he does in Oregon or New York or the Northwest or Washington State or whatever. The only thing that matters is how he does in this handful of swing states that have more moderate voters. Um, voter, you know, turnout is important, but it's only it's only important in these like six districts in Wisconsin and a couple of other states um, that that tend to be uh, more moderate. So I'm not sure how this is going to play out. So, yeah, I mean, in in. You know, these states he desperately needs to win, like Pennsylvania, he's he's far behind. Wisconsin, which I think was somewhat of a surprise win for Trump in 2016, he's behind. The question is, so he's been clearly bleeding support. And I think the big part of the story is white suburban voters who we thought were going to be disgusted by him in 2016. That was what the intelligentsia thought. They weren't. They often voted for him. They seem to have lost faith in him and to be turning away from him. The question is, can this U-turn that? And I think I'm skeptical because like, does anyone think Joe Biden is like the Antifa anarchist candidate? Like you could, I still wish it had been Warren or 
Sanders, although like every day I it's harder for me to defend that position just in terms of probability of winning, given how important it is, I think he loses. You can't run against Biden like Oh, Biden is pro Antifa. I think that just doesn't stick, right? Well, I mean, he he will try it. He has tried it, and it, you know, this is not the only thing going on. Trump has so badly botched the response to the pandemic, um, where we're seeing vast improvements in Europe and in Canada and all over the world, and here things continually get worse. Um, so I cannot imagine that actually helping him. But we should probably shift back to the moms real quick. Wall of moms. Walla moms. Okay. So before we went on that long tangent about the future of the United States and the world, we were talking about the wall of moms. So after Trump sent these officers to Portland, and I think it's important to note here that he did this without the consent of the local or the state government. And the protest has just only escalated the protest. Um, so a group arose called the Wall of Moms. And this started out, there's some question about, did this like start out organically with women just showing up to the protest or was this, this is co- coordinated by, by various forces. But these moms or people who identify as moms, non-binary, uh, mom folk, um, showed up to these protests and stood in front of, of the crowd as this wall of moms. And I talked to a reporter, um, Nancy Rommelman yesterday, who has been important reporting on this. And she said they were basically human shields because even these troops, even the borax, or is it borats? Borat. Do, do not deploy Borat to a, to a city without their consent. Uh, Bortak. So even Bortak cannot look at this wall of moms and, you know, shoot, shoot rubber bullets and gas them because it's just a bunch of fucking moms and nobody can do that. So it was sort of a genius move, genius political move. That said, the wall of moms lasted for about five days before the whole thing fucking crumbled. Yeah, there was a um, yet another should we say racial or racist controversy involving the wall of mobs? I, so I, I, I did my homework on this one, Katie. I promise. I read the article about it. I still cannot tell you exactly what the fuck happened. It's so confusing. It's basically an accusation that they didn't protect black people of which we should add there are three in Portland. Okay. So Wall of Moms was founded by – so as an organization, as a formal organization, it was founded or organized by a white woman whose name was Bev Barnum. So she was the founder. And then um, during the course of organizing this this group, uh, at one point, I guess a week or so ago, they decided that the leadership should be all black, right? And so there's other groups in Portland. Specifically, there's a group called Don't Shoot PDX that is that is run by women of color, and it's been around uh, like for several years. It's been around a lot longer than than Wall of Moms. So you know things are going okay. This this group is getting tons of attention. The Wall of Moms are covered everywhere in the media, and then on July 29th, the severing was made public. So the Friday before this, Wall of Moms, all of the white leadership s- stepped down from Wall of Moms, and they appointed uh, women of color to lead this group. On July 29th, the Wall of Moms comes out with a statement. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you some of these tweets. Wall of Moms started out with a social contract. Defer to Black voices. Shield Black bodies. The people who joined this movement of mothers did so under that understanding. The founder, Bev Barnum, decided to break that social contract. Break is, by the way, in all caps. And then she uses the hashtag Wall of Gloms. Glom? G-L-O-M-S. Wall of Gloms. I'm not sure. I guess they glommed on. (laughs) Continuing. 
As of today, all POC admins of Wall of Moms Facebook, including prominent Black activist Teresa L. Rayford, have been removed and Don't Shoot PDX has been betrayed after legitimizing Wall of Moms due to the now broken social contract. So this was posted on the official Wall of Moms um, Twitter page. Soon after this, the woman who, who posted this, who had control of the Twitter account, um, was removed as an admin, right? So she went rogue. And then, so don't shoot PDX. So this group that was sort of coalescing with Wall of Moms put out an announcement. And I'm going to read you a little bit of this. After leaving vulnerable Black women downtown after marching, failing to support those on the ground that put trust in them, at Wall of Moms, leadership also found time to make three registrations through Oregon's Secretary of State. This was all done in privacy and without the knowledge of the Black leadership Wall of Moms was claiming to implement. The lies are finally clear, and we are sad but ultimately not surprised that anti-Blackness showed its ugly face with Wall of Moms. This all came to light over the last 24 hours. We began having safety concerns within the group because Black women started saying they were not protected by Wall of Moms leadership. Too frequently would be in communication for safety, transport, etc. And when the time came, there would be zero response and no leadership to rely on. It's put many on the ground in direct danger. Once these registration filings with the Secretary of State came out, it became more clear. Wall of Moms was not started for BLM, but to get the feds out of Portland. None of the Black leadership Wall of Moms claimed to implement knew about this. Combined with the lack of care for and disregard for Black women, we are used to further an agenda unrelated to BLM. Please do not support this organization anymore. We need everyone to show up against racism, but it's even more crucial to prioritize transparency and accountability. So what happened here is that Bev Barnum, apparently the founder of this group, registered Wall of Moms as a PAC and as a nonprofit. And she did this without consulting the, the Black appointed leadership of this group. In terms of putting Black women in danger, there's no further details here that says something about transport. So maybe like they didn't give people rides to protest or back from protest or something like that. Um, you know, terms like harm and danger are frequently overused. I don't know what happened um, because they didn't tell us what happened. Anyway, so this group has totally fallen apart after just days after becoming this sort of, uh, you know, sort of token of the movement. And at the same time, the leader of the Portland NAACP came out and said that these new protests that attacking these uh, the Justice Building um, and the federal courthouse has distracted from the message of BLM, which seems pretty true. Well, I have many thoughts, some less helpful than others. L- an unhelpful thought is that Bev Barnum is basically the whitest name imaginable. So she was sort of painting a target on herself on that front. How dare she? How dare she be do better? Uh, I mean, the, part of what's weird about this whole thing is uh, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are, are familiar with the concept of LARPing or live action role playing. Um, the, the critique of certain radical protesters in the Trump era, well, radical protesters on both sides, frankly, is they're just in it because they want to feel like they're part of some sort of epic street battle struggle. And they're LARPing. They're dressing up as a revolutionary and going out in the streets and trying to find people to punch or fight. There seems to be a pretty strong strain of that in Portland. Portland is about, I think, 6% black, which is, I mean, for a major metropolitan area, that's ridiculous. In a country that's- It's the whitest city in America. It's insane. 13.4% black uh, is America's figure. So- I, I don't know what it is about this place. It just seems to attract radical, most I think mostly white people with chips on their shoulders. Like the New York Times did a daily thing where they pointed out the group, the protesters got more diverse after the feds came in, suggesting they weren't before. So I, I, I think a lot of this 
Was it the feds who brought the diversity? <laughs> the feds, that's, first of all, it's probably true that like Customs and Border Patrol is literally more diverse, like more Latinos. But yeah, they the you know a, a, I think a lot more uh, Portlanders, if that's the right term, got pissed off. But uh, this the thing going on with Wall of Moms is just like it's it seems like these days if a new promising lefty group or figure pops up it's a shocker if they survive two or three days without some sort of big internecine blow up and like you said it's like not even clear exactly what was done wrong i guess they it sounds like the people who founded the movement tried to incorporate it they didn't tell the black people who had been appointed and again this is a city that's six percent black so i I just i'm so confused and disheartened by this it all seems like such a distraction to be honest also my other unhelpful thought was like the only countermeasure for a wall of moms uh the border patrol guy should have deployed a wall of surly teens you know what i think there should be a wall of podcasters (laughs) we must protect our fellow podcasters you can just use the podcasters as human actually use gamers as the human shields and you can have the podcasters behind the gamers Gamers, like large doughy bodies, should always be used as human shields to protect, you know, other more valuable people, which is everybody. Sorry, gamers. <laughs> which is podcasters. Yeah. yeah. So the other interesting thing here is that the media coverage of what's been going on in Portland is is horrific. It's oh. impossible to figure out what the fuck is actually going on in Portland. Um, the things that you see on social media, uh, the things that you see in the press seem extremely cherry picked to, to promote this one particular narrative. And maybe the narrative is on the whole correct, but it's just really hard to, uh, to know what's, what's real and what's not. Like for, for one thing, this viral video went around, um, of, of some, I guess they were fed, uh, basically arresting protesters and, and pulling them into these unmarked cars. And the narrative that spread was that the feds were kidnapping people in the streets of downtown Portland. What they were doing was like, it looked terrible. I concede that it looked terrible. They had unmarked vehicles, like scary shit, right? Nobody wants to see that in their city. However, these people have not been disappeared, right? This is not Central America. Nobody is being like held from their families. They were arrested, charged, and mostly let go. Um, you know, they have court dates, most of them, I assume. Um, so this is just not like it looks bad. But if you turn on CNN or MSNBC or most major outlets in print, what you see is the feds are kidnapping people from the streets of downtown Portland. Yeah, there's definitely a sensationalizing aspect of it. Um, there have been videos of people sort of not identifying themselves I guess these guys will wear their uniforms, have patches that show what agency they're with, but they cover their names because of fear of doxing. That's the government's argument. I That would not surprise me if people in Portland were trying to dox federal officials they didn't want there. So I don't know how I feel about that. It would surprise me if that if that didn't, wasn't happening. Wasn't happening, yeah. So look, I, don't, I, I think Trump made a horrible move here. I think the feds have made things worse. I think they're undertrained. There's clearly videos where they're just like attacking people unprovoked. I also think there were there were apparently this whole thing kicked off with 50 straight nights of often rowdy, destructive protests. And like the Times Daily article at least had the balance to point out that like business owners are getting pissed. You know, on the other side of the equation, the Times ran a video about the feds escalating things that definitely included some horrific footage, but also didn't even mention that that one of the precipitating events here was a state building getting lit on fire and invaded by protesters May 29th, which was 
eight years ago, seemingly. So while there were people inside it, while there were people inside it cowering, like the ventilator, I mean, Nancy Rodman wrote an article about this. We'll link to, but it's just like, you can't leave that out. That doesn't make you pro Trump to be like, well, that suggests things got out of control. And there's also all this backstory involving Ted Wheeler, the mayor who everybody hates. He's like trying to be like some anti-Trump figure. They're all like, fuck you, Ted. Sometimes chanting Mm -hmm. that, I think. Chanting it. Yeah. Um, there's all this tension apparently between the police there between city council and Wheeler and the police have basically been told to go really soft on the protesters, which as a general rule is good. I also, if you have people night after night after night defacing and attacking a state building, like I I don't think it makes you a reactionary to be like, well, surely you're allowed to respond somehow. Surely you're allowed to arrest the people doing that. I I just, what makes me really uncomfortable is like, There's a literal reading of federal law where some of these are federal crimes because there's, there's the courthouse is a federal courthouse nearby. So at least that's a federal building and it is a federal crime to attra- attack one. I don't think you should be like throwing the books at someone who, who, you know, is involved in this. I think there's got to be a middle way, but I, I just think like this small corner of Portland did get really out of control and I'm not sure the media covered that. And I guess this just gets back to the, the sense that like all institutions are collapsing and we don't have anywhere we can trust. Like as far as I was concerned, one of the two time sources I, I had access to that sort of summed up everything was accurate. The other one was very slanted. Uh, it sucks because like normally you would just – you'd know that you could trust the newspapers covering this to at least give a reasonably balanced account. But – you know, it's increasingly how the how the hell does an outsider even figure out what's going on there? Yeah, this reminds me of the recent uh, Code Switch episode on, on uh, NPR. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I might write a longer thing about this, or maybe we should devote a full segment to it at some point. But there was a case involving a guy named Majdi Wadi in Minneapolis. I think we talked about this on our patrons only episode. His business was if not ruined, came pretty close to ruination because his daughter did racist social media posts when she was a teenager and and apparently dealing with some stuff. So people took this as license to try to destroy his business over something he never did. He fired his daughter, who was his caterer, as soon as he found out about this. This is sort of a grocer and caterer. They had a number of locations around Minneapolis, several of which have now been shut down. And you know, NPR show Code Switch did this very bizarre episode where they just sort of took it as a given that that this guy has to pay back some moral debt because of something his daughter did. And they they approached it in such sort of a sneering, condescending light where over and over you heard the host sort of openly judging this Palestinian immigrant. Like he's been here for 30 years, but he's an immigrant. He doesn't know the the way you're supposed to talk about race if you went to Bard. And some of the stuff he said isn't even really problematic, but just comes across as ignorant. If you have a background like you or me, like a liberal arts school, and it's these NPR posts sort of just, just not covering the story with any balance or reasonableness. And it's just – there's just this sense – increasingly that mainstream media is just sort of high on its own supply and and incapable of covering hot button issues in a balanced fair way. And I think that's really corrosive, especially with a situation like Portland where we're beset by this just wave of videos and out of context snippets. And we desperately need someone to add context and to tell a clear and accurate story. Who's going to do that? Blocked and reported. Other than blocked and reported. You know, this sort of reminds me of the Ben Smith column um, about Ronan Farrow. Do you remember this from a million years ago? Yeah, the resistance journalism thing. Yeah, resistance journalism. This idea that 
that if you are a journalist, the goal shouldn't be objectivity or balance even. Um, the goal should be to participate in the resistance. It's activism. And that's what you see more and more from the, from the mainstream media. And, and there's, you know, you have outlets like Think Progress and you also have alt weeklies that have existed forever. And you have, you have outlets that are, that are ideological and that's totally fine. Um, I think those should exist. I think they, they play an important part in the ecosystem, but I don't think that the New York times or Washington post or the LA times or local papers um, should be in the business of activism. They should be in the business of reporting, but more and more what you see is the opposite where reporters uh, don't even pretend to be objective anymore. Yeah. I mean, right before I got on with you, I saw on Twitter that the New York Times Guild, as part of their sort of demands in the wake of the, you know, George Floyd and Tom Cotton op-ed and stuff, they want to institutionalize sensitivity readers in the New York Times, which is so crazy and so antithetical to just basic tenets of journalism. Um Journalism will not survive the idea of institutionalized sensitivity readers. And, and don't get me wrong. I don't think this is going to happen. I think it, it's a guild's job to make demands and management's job to shoot down some of them. But the fact that journalists at the Times can look at what the paper is currently doing and becoming, including – I think it was two weeks ago, right? They do a news article saying that a trans woman of color led the Stonewall uprising just as this endlessly debunked thing, which is just a woke talking point. So now you need a – you know, add the woke talking points, fold them into the news, um, that anyone could think what the Times needs more of is ideological sort of adulteration on the part of its young staffers is, is crazy to me. And that's exactly the kind of problem we're talking about. Yeah, this this Times, uh, we can we can link to it. There was a, a th- this thread on Twitter from the, the Times Guild. Their demands, not only do they want sensitivity readers institutionalized within the paper, they also want racial quotas. So they say, our workforce should reflect our home. The Times should set a goal to have its workforce demographics reflect reflect the makeup of New York City, 24% Black and over 50% of people of color by 2025. That would be incredibly difficult to do in journalism in the first place. But the Times also isn't just the paper of New York City. It's an international paper, you know, like you're instituting quotas, but for progress. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the um, demands was basically to have the demographics of the times more or less match up with the demographics of of New York City, which I, I think that's a fine goal. It's just like the, the timeline they suggested. Um, I there's this giant and widening void just in American civic life and journalism and activism, where you know I think five years ago I would have gone to the Times and like the ACLU to to talk me through all the sort of wrinkles of the Portland thing, and I just I don't feel like we can do that anymore. The other the other risk, um, and I think this is related because like, so resistance journalism is, is a view of the world that really focuses on Trump. And obviously there's uniquely bad stuff about Trump. He's, I still think it's unbelievable we elected this guy to be president, but in some cases the problems run deeper. So, so the customs and border protection agents operating in Portland you know, back when the ACLU was doing more important stuff than like pretending there aren't male and female athletes, um, they have a page I'll link to called the Constitution in the 100-Mile Border Zone. And what they point out is that uh, federal regulations hold that these Customs and Border Protection guys and, and gals, mostly guys, um, have broad latitude to operate within a 100 miles 
of the American border. They can set up checkpoints. They can arrest people. In theory, you still have your constitutional rights. In practice, they often just flout those rights. So there's this big problem that I think on the media, uh, the podcast and radio show started covering maybe a decade ago with this government agency being completely out of control. And this is clearly an extension of that. Why, why are customs and border folks being sent to Portland for something that has nothing to do with customs or the border? Like, And that's the kind of question where if you focus this entirely on Trump – Rather than, than understand that there was a president before Trump and there will be a president after Trump. That's the kind of just like broader view and institutional knowledge that I think is increasingly missing right now. If you just, if you phrase this as like, oh, well, Portland's descending into fascism, it's like, uh, whether or not you agree with that, part of this problem is regulations that were on the books before Trump was even inaugurated. Who did Obama send to confront the Bundys at, uh, at the wildlife refuge in Oregon? Surely those were federal officers. And and someone was killed. A one of the one of the Bundy protesters was killed. Yeah, I mean, so so Portland's different because it's not like a standoff. But I, but it, some of this stuff gets more complicated than than just race, for example, because like I think Waco and the Bundy situation. Um, there's another situation from the 70s or 80s where where police just dropped a bomb uh, on this black group in Philadelphia. This story, this, I think we should take a moment and actually talk about this story because I hadn't, I hadn't heard about this until about five years ago. So it was called the move bombing. And there was basically a black nationalist group living in this, uh, this apartment complex or this like building in Philly. Um, and the police, the local police dropped a fucking bomb on this building. So, and this starts a fire, obviously, and this killed six members of the organization and five kill- kids, and it destroyed 65 homes. This happened in 1985, and I didn't hear about this until probably five years ago. Just unbelievably fucked up. It was, I mean, it, it, it was so bad. And the, you know, the authorities do horrible stuff like this, but you need to. There's just a lack of context and 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 this sort of belief that it all can just be boiled down to to white supremacism. I, I was just looking up on Twitter back in 2016 when the Bundy thing was going on. People immediately started doing these takes like, "Oh, well, well, if they weren't white, wouldn't they have just been like shot right away?" And that that required such historical ignorance because again, part of the reason the feds respond the way they do now is because Waco was such a catastrophe, and that was a lot of white people dying because of the government's horrific botching of a standoff. So yeah, I thought I didn't think I'd started complaining about this alpha media cover, but this is March 2016. I was tweeting about how, you know, Salon and Think Progress had these ridiculously dumb takes that ignored the fact that Waco was a thing. And then Think Progress actually did an update to their story that basically was just like, oh yeah, Waco happened. (laughs) So this, this trajectory has been going on for a while, but like you need journalists who have some broader level of knowledge about even just like, the relationship between the feds and and radical protesters and you're not it's just now it's just out of context little bits of video someone posted a photo that looked really bad of um a federal guy wrestling this woman but then someone else posted the full video and it was clear she had breached this barrier that had been set up like it's all just it, it just feels like a never-ending wave of bullshit and hardly anyone qualified to to dig through it and find whatever the truth is underneath and i, I hate that feeling it's sort of a uh, epistemic vertigo. Yeah, that's the thing about video, right? So you have these short clips and you believe your eyes. And then when you 
watch the longer video, like in the, the you know, the Covington case or some of the, the these cases of things that have happened um, in Seattle during the protest, you see, oh, this is not what I thought it was. But you can just strip this from its context and put it online. The video goes viral. And all of a sudden, this narrative that isn't based in reality, you know, is uh, becomes mainstream. And then it's picked up by the media, which just credulously repeats, uh, repeats this shit without doing any sort of basic due diligence or fact checking. Yeah. Well, it was like in 2019 when that video of you slapping me went viral, but the full cut showed that I had been mouthing off to you and asking for it. I mean, you deserved it. I did. I was being so mouthy. I I, I apologize. It won't happen again. It's just, it's the sounds of your mouth. It's not just like <laughs> the words. It's like the sounds that all of the sounds, like you're the spitty part. The spitty part. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, like the Customs and Border Protection thing is like, that's, that's a policy thing that perhaps should be revealed. Like if people, if the activism was like, why are these guys allowed to operate within a hundred miles of the border? Which as the ACLU pointed out, that, that covers two thirds of America, the American population. Like I, there's a lot of work to be done here. And I just, I resent the idea that I'm supposed to like treat the guys throwing fireworks at a federal building and like defacing it night after night that I'm supposed to act like that's like the righteous cause. And and a lot of activists, including like, you know, Ilhan Omer have pointed out the violent and destructive stuff doesn't work. And, and I just, there's something so broken about the way, I don't know how many times I can repeat myself on this, but just the way media is covering this that's so disheartening to watch. You know, it sort of comes back to uh, the David Shore tweet um, when David Shore we talked about about before this data uh, analyst who was fired by a, a basically Democratic think tank um, for tweeting an article by a scholar named Omar Wazo um, that found that nonviolent protests are more effective than violent protests. And this has been this finding was not new. This has been uh, other people have, have have written on this and studied this. Um, there's a Erica Chenoweth in particular, um, a study that I that I cite all the time. She analyzed like a uh, hundred years, a century of, of movements. And what they found was that nonviolent protests were twice as likely to to be successful, to result in some sort of political change than violent protests. And one of the reasons, there's a couple of reasons for this. One of them is because violence turns people off, turns potential allies off. And the other reason is that it gives the feds, it gives the government an excuse to respond in kind with violence, which is exactly what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Although, I mean, there's a version of that from like the civil rights era where, you know, if you march in the street peacefully and provoke the fed, the police into beating you that that is seen as a success because in that case you really you did nothing wrong but i just think it's different when when trump and other reactionary types can say you know they're attacking they're attacking a federal building we can't allow that because it's just it's hard for me to like come up with a counter argument to that like i you, you did not see me saying like oh no they um they shut down the williamsburg bridge they should all be arrested i'm fine with like a broad swath of nonviolent protesting i just don't see how you can expect the authorities to sort of take that night after night after night. Right. And the same thing I think is true with the looting and the, the rioting that we saw in the immediate aftermath of, of George Floyd. Um, you know, what do you think pe- police should do? Just really like stand there while people are breaking into businesses and, and buildings and looting them? Most people, most, again, it's just the Twitter filter bubble. Most people are against this stuff and, and you ignore that at your own peril. Were you watching any of Michael Tracy's live streams or did you follow any of his work down in Portland? No, I heard that he was like 
on a couple as as happens with him he got sort of angrily confronted by protesters a couple times right right so michael tracy is a journalist he's a he's a lefty guy um and he he took the last like five weeks and he's been driving around the country visiting places where they've had um, protests and riots and things like this and, and doing a, a pretty good job of, of documenting um, what's been going on and like going to Minneapolis and talking to locals who live in these neighborhoods that were, um, that were targeted during, during these riots. Um, and surprise, surprise, many of the locals are not happy about, you know, their grocery stores being fucking closed forever. Um, who would have thought? mostly black locals who live in these neighborhoods. Um, and so Michael went down to Portland and he was, uh, as, as usual, um, approached by, by some people who don't like his work, um, some anarchist LARPers. And uh, at one point they stole his phone and they wouldn't give it back to him until he said black lives matter. Normal stuff. Very normal. Stuff. Totally normal. Didn't he also asked a question about, I think he was trying to ask Ted Wheeler, the mayor, basically about like, if uh, the pandemic is an emergency, shouldn't there not be these protests? And people did not like that either. Oh, yeah. He was shouted down for asking the mayor a completely legitimate question about whether it is wise to protest during a global fucking pandemic, which is another thing that the media has just sort of ignored. Like, okay, the protest started and hmm. You know, about a month later, there's a spike in COVID cases. And if you turn on the news, what you're mostly going to hear is that this is coming from young people partying. Well, maybe that's true, but maybe it's also true that tens of thousands of people standing arm in arm together uh, in the streets and getting tear gassed and whatever um, also contribute. It just seems unlikely that the two are not somehow connected, but you will not get any sort of analysis from that from most of the media. Yeah, the point isn't even, you know, as you indicated, we don't know for sure. Maybe they're not connected. Maybe they are. The point is, the point is, who is going to tell us? Who's going to do the work of actually trying to figure it out? No one, right? It's it's totally possible that you know that the virus really does care about your cause, and that, <laughs> that you know that wearing like that wearing a face mask um, in, in these in these protests actually is having an impact. And if it is, I would also like to know that because that should also. Uh, dictate some public policy like maybe outdoor sporting events actually are fine um you know but instead it's just like it's like there's two different stories and we've totally disconnected them because tom brady is no longer on the patriots and it looks like the patriots are going to be bad i'm convinced that covid can spread during nfl games and the season should be canceled yeah until until tom brady decides to come back at like 48. Uh, yeah, this is all, I mean, this all goes back to, I think you and I both have some other projects and responsibilities going on, but early on in the podcast, we talked about creating a cult that we could provide the one, the one shining path to truth as standards collapse elsewhere. And I think we should get on that. I think we should really get more serious. After you, uh, write your rap about the replication crisis, we'll do the cult next. Yo, 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 check, check my levels. That's all I got so far. This is, this is going to be great. I was corresponding with my uh, producer, who is uh, a known podcaster, and it's going to be fun when I do it. I, I love that instead of getting like an actual rapper or a musician, you got a known podcaster. <laughs> well, he's a known podcaster who makes beats, so the, the quality is yeah. going to be through the roof. I'm just I'm worried that like other hip hop artists will try to pull their own records off of Spotify because they'll realize how bad they are compared to mine. So I'm just worried this could cause economic damage, to be honest. Have you decided if you're going to release this on Spotify or on Jay-Z's thing? I'm sure you've got, you know, any option you want, maybe a a major record label. Yeah, there's a lot of offers rolling in. Uh, For now, I'm going to release it on the $5 blocked reported patron channel. All right. Well, that's fair. 
Okay, so that about wraps it up. Uh, remember, you can always email us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, a vibrant Twitter account uh, at the bar pod. Definitely check out our growing subreddit. Over a thousand people now, reddit.com slash blocked and reported. What else, Katie? Uh, join us on Clubhouse. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You got to report back. You're on Clubhouse now, right? I am on Clubhouse. Okay. So Clubhouse, for people who don't know, is a new audio-based social media network um, that's just sort of starting to grow right now. Um, and it's it's invite-only. Um, and so it's very curated, the people, the sort of – like there's people in tech, lots of people in tech mostly. Um, and so you, you sort of drop in on these – like you get a notification saying like Oprah is in Clubhouse or what Oprah is actually in Clubhouse. Um, you'll get a notification saying that these people are, are having a meeting um, and you just drop in and listen to them. And yesterday I dropped in on a conversation. I don't know what was going on. It was three or four white women and they were talking about something that had happened in Clubhouse the night before – something race racial or racist that happened and and the only the like the part that i heard uh before i dropped out was that someone said that progressives are the most dangerous people in america so i guess that was the robin d'angelo clubhouse room robin d'angelo shit, shit we mentioned her name again i think we broke a long street well what's interesting to me is that they weren't talking about the the most serious bigotry that besets this new clubhouse uh platform which is it's anti-Android bigotry because I, I was in a position to get an invite too, but I don't have an iPhone, so I'm just excluded entirely. You should get an iPhone just to be on Clubhouse. No, I'd rather just be on the outside and complain about it. It gives me social power. I'm marginalized now. I'll be your Clubhouse correspondent. Please do. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, there's a really big, crucial difference between deploying Bortac and Borat to an American city experiencing unrest. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, the wall of moms might be dead, but there's always the wall of MILFs. That's so hot. <laughs>